John 20, 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The word of the Lord. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Do you want to see this world become a better place? I know that's kind of a ridiculous question. Of course we all want this world to be a better place. We want passionately for this world to be a better place. Um, The real question is, um, how in the world does that actually happen? And is there even any possibility of that happening? The real question is, um, making that world the place we want it to be is a completely different matter. We can want it to be so, but making it so, that's a different story. So for instance, my wife Jenny and I uh, had an opportunity this past week to attend a pre-screening of a new movie called Emmanuel. It's about the shootings that happened at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston back in uh, 2015. Uh, A white supremacist walked into um, an historically black church for a prayer meeting they were holding there. And they welcomed him into their midst. He stayed the whole time. And at the end of the meeting, when they closed their eyes to pray, he stood up and gunned down nine of the people in that prayer meeting. And after the film, there was a panel discussion comprised of local African-American leaders. And I think the very first question to the panel was, you just saw this film. What are you thinking? How do you respond to that? And one of the panelists said, we're still here. Now, when she said that, my first thought was that she was saying, um, no matter how much people try to hurt us and destroy us, we're going to survive. We're still here. But that's not what she was saying. As she continued to speak, it became clear that what she was really saying was, no matter how much progress we thought we've made in this country, we're still being murdered. We're still in this same horrible, stuck, awful reality place. The sad reality is that you could devote your life to trying to make this world the place we all want it to be. You could give your life to it, and and you could spend years doing it and think that you've actually made some real progress only to find out years that everything you thought you've done and just feel like it doesn't make any difference at all. The real question is, is there any hope for this world? Is there any hope for this world? And if so, what kind of role do we play in that? This passage that we just read actually gives us answers to that question. Yes, we all want the world to be a better place, but is there any real hope? And if so, what role do we play in that? 
We're finishing this morning a series in which we've been looking at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've been asking the question, what difference does it make? And especially this morning, what hope is there for the world? Is there any real hope for the world? And what role do we play in that hope? This passage gives us answers because Jesus gives us three things here. He gives us a vision for the world. He gives us a mission for our lives. And he gives us the power we need for that mission. Okay, a vision for the world, a mission for our lives, and the power we need for that mission. So first, Jesus gives us a vision for the world. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, oh, it says that Jesus came and stood among them, that's the disciples, and he said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So what's happening is Jesus comes to his disciples and he shows them his resurrected body. Now, we began looking at this last week. Um, When Jesus shows them his resurrected body, the, the, the body that he shows to them, the body that came out of the tomb, is the same body that went into the tomb. But it's also a gloriously transformed body. But it's even more than that. Um... Throughout the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament, over and over again, the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. That means that what God did for Jesus Christ in his body, one day he's going to do for the whole world. That the resurrection is, is a sign, it shows us a, a, a promise of what God is one day going to do for the whole world. He's going to raise it from the dead. He's going to Uh, turn it, transform it into a gloriously transformed world. So, in other words, God is going to bring about the world that we all yearn for. So when Jesus says, peace be with you, he's actually affirming that world. Now that word, peace, when Jesus says that, it's not just a meaningless greeting like, you know, peace out. Um, When Jesus says, peace be with you, he would have used the word, the Hebrew word shalom. Now shalom is normally translated peace in our English Bibles, but the word shalom means way more than what we would normally think about when we think about the word peace. That Jesus isn't just talking about some inner tranquil feeling of serenity and well-being. Shalom means wholeness and flourishing and perfection in every area of life, not just spiritual, but emotional, psychological, Um, physical, material, relational, social. And it's not just us as individuals, it's the whole world. Shalom is not just a personal individual event, it's a global cosmic event. So think about the world that we all long for. Shalom means that world. It means a world where there's no more war, poverty, hunger, oppression, racism, No more sickness or disease or death. No more tears or shame. No more sorrow or suffering. No more loneliness. No more addiction. No more fighting. That's shalom. But it's even more than that. If you had asked the disciples before they saw Jesus risen from the dead, hey, Peter, hey, John, what do you think a resurrection body is like? I don't know exactly what they would have told you, but they wouldn't have told you what they actually saw. That their comprehension, their idea of what a resurrection body was nowhere near what the reality was. The resurrection body of Jesus Christ was way beyond any categories they had for what they would have described. It wasn't just um, a new and improved version of the old body. 
It was a whole new kind of body. God is going to do the same thing for this world. And if God is going to do the same thing for this world, that means that all of our yearnings and longings um, for the perfect world that we want this world to be are really just shadows, mere glimpses of the future reality. It's kind of like, you know, the very best that we can imagine, when we try to imagine the best world that could possibly be, it's really, it's really like when you get your furniture reupholstered. You know, when that happens, it's like having brand new furniture, maybe even sometimes better than brand new furniture, but it's still a new and improved version of the same thing. God is not reupholstering the world. That's not the biblical vision. God is transforming the world way beyond anything we can possibly imagine. So throughout the Bible, the Psalms and the prophets are constantly talking about how one day creation itself is going to come alive in a way that it's not alive right now. For instance, Psalm 96 says that one day the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. Yeah, it's probably symbolic language, but that's only because the reality that it's pointing to is so far beyond anything we can comprehend that we just don't have the language to describe it. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Every religion, in fact, every worldview, including secular materialist worldviews, which say that there is no God, this world is all, all there is, every single worldview that's out there has some kind of concept of salvation. And by salvation, I mean everybody has answers to two of the biggest questions in the world. What's wrong with the world and what's the solution? Your answer to those two questions is your doctrine of salvation, and everybody has one because everybody's got answers to those questions, okay? That's your concept of salvation. So, for instance, Eastern religions say that this world is an illusion. It's not what it appears to be. And salvation means escaping from the never-ending cycle of suffering, death, and rebirth, and one day becoming one with the all-soul. It's an escape from material reality into a purely spiritual reality. Many people think, unfortunately, a lot of Christians also think, mistakenly think, that the gospel is just a Christian version of the same thing. In other words, it's so woven into us to think that, that one day God is going to destroy this world and then he's going to just transport people away up into some disembodied heaven like, beam me up, Scotty. But the biblical vision is not that. It's not that one day God is going to destroy this world. It's that one day he's going to renew. He's going to transform this world. Every single worldview has some kind of view of salvation that means escaping this world. So ironically, even materialistic views of the world, secular views of the world that say there's no God, even those views of salvation say that one day the world is going to burn up, second law of thermodynamics, and that the only hope for humanity is to escape this world. We're going to colonize other planets. That's our only hope. Every single view of salvation out there, whether religious or secular, involves some means of escaping this material world except the Bible. The biblical view of salvation is completely different from every other view of salvation. So, for instance, Vinoth Ramachandra is a Christian thinker, writer, and social critic. He's also Sri Lankan, um, ironically, but what that really means for us is that he's way more familiar with all the other religions of the world than we are. He lives right in the midst of them. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam. Um, 
he gave a little lecture once in which he talked about the reality that sometimes people will ask him the question, hey, don't you think that there's salvation in other faiths? And he has a great response to that. Here's what he says in the lecture. He says, biblical salvation is not an escape from this world, but the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for the world, this world, in any of the religious systems or philosophies of humankind, the biblical vision is unique. That is why when some people ask me, don't you think there's salvation in other faiths? I always say, what salvation are you talking about? Not this salvation. That is a brilliant response from somebody who knows what he's talking about. There is nothing else like that in the world. It is a radically unique vision of salvation because it's a radically unique vision of the transformation of this world. Now, for those of you who might be skeptical about this, or maybe you're skeptical about the Bible, especially, I want to invite you to consider something. You know, in our modern Western culture, one of our most cherished and foundational concepts is the idea of progress. This idea that history is a story, it's a narrative, it's a road, it's a journey, and we are inevitably making progress as we move along this story. That it's actually possible to change the world and to change it for better. That idea is woven into us as modern Western people. But do you know where that idea comes from? If you go back and look throughout ancient history, they had a very, very different view of the world. And it wasn't just Eastern religions. It was Greek society. It was the whole world. The whole world, the whole ancient world saw history not as a story, not as a narrative, not as a journey, but as a wheel, a never-ending cycle, like a hamster wheel. It's just going around and around and around, and it's never going to change. You cannot change the wheel. The best you can hope is to escape the wheel. But there is no change in the wheel. That's the way the ancient world, everybody in the ancient world looked at history until Jesus came along and said, I am the fulfillment of the biblical view of salvation. History is not a never-ending cycle, a never-ending wheel just spinning around and around going nowhere. History is a story that's going somewhere good, that good is possible, change is possible. When Jesus Christ burst into history, that view of the world went viral. So if you believe in progress, if you believe in the possibility of change in this world, the only reason that's part of our mental furniture in this culture is because of Jesus and a biblical view of reality. That means that Christians have way more motivation for caring for this world than any other worldview out there. And I know we don't act like it all the time, but we should. We should be the best environmentalists, the best people who are working for justice and reconciliation, the best people who are working for education and ecological change and, and housing and jobs and all of that stuff. We should be the most motivated for that because the Bible, Jesus gives us a radically unique vision for the future of this world, point number one. But point number two, Jesus also gives us a mission for our lives. Because if God's going to transform the world one day, then what does that mean for you and me right now, today? Jesus tells us in verse 21, he says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That means in the same way, in the same manner. That yes, one day Jesus is going to come and transform the whole world. But until that day, he gives us a mission that we are to live in the same way, in the same manner that he lives. Now, what does that look like? 
Well, before we talk about that, there's one thing we need to say first about this. God sent Jesus primarily to be the Savior of this world, so that on the cross, Jesus Christ died to save the world from all the effects of evil, sin, and death. I I hope it goes without saying, but it's probably worth saying, just in case any of us are confused about this, that you and I are not the saviors of the world. That's not our job description. But we do have something else to do because up until Jesus went to the cross, what was he doing? The Gospel of John, most scholars divide it into two halves. And in the first half of the Gospel is John is called the book of signs. Sign is, is the Gospel writer John's way of, of describing what the other Gospels call miracles. Now, this is important. We need to take a little bit of time to think about this. When Jesus did miracles, what was the point of his miracles? You know, if you think about it, who was Jesus? He is the God of the universe in human flesh. That means that Jesus could do all kinds of things. Jesus, if he wanted to, Jesus could have made the sun do backflips. He could have shot laser beams out of his eyes. He could have jumped over mountains. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's Jesus. Jesus could have done all kinds of things, that, and people would have been really impressed. They would have said, wow, but Jesus didn't do any of those things. What did he do? Jesus fed people miraculously. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He gave new legs, new spinal cords to people who couldn't walk. He, um, he cast demons out of people who were oppressed by evil forces. He even raised people from the dead. Do you see the point? Jesus' miracles, his signs, are pointing to a future reality of the future vision for the world in which things like um, evil and suffering and sickness and disease and death, where, where those things disappear. It's the world we all long for. The point is that the signs give us a vision of a future reality, but they also give us a foretaste of that reality right now in this world. Now, here's why this is so important for you and me. God calls every single one of us as his people he gives us a mission. He calls us into an adventure. He gives us a mission to be signs of his coming kingdom to the world around us. Now, historically, that has always meant two things for the church. We do that through the words we speak and through the, the deeds, the way we live, okay? Historically, the church has always held both of those things together. In the last hundred years or so in America, those two things have become separated, So that on the one hand, conservative churches will be really good at talking about spiritual truth and calling people to spiritual transformation in Jesus, but not so good at doing the social action, the compassion and the mercy part of it. On the other hand, liberal churches are really good at the social action, but don't tend to put a lot of emphasis on spiritual truth and and calling people to a radically changed life in Jesus. The church has always historically held both of those things together, and we need to do the same thing also. But this morning, I want to focus especially on the deeds part. I want to focus especially on the life we live part, and for a couple of reasons. One of them is, as modern 21st century Christians, we just don't do as a good a job of that. And the second reason is, in our modern secular culture, we live in a disenchanted world. 
We live in a world that, that views spiritual reality as, at best, being a kind of a therapeutic option for your life. If it works for you, if it helps you have a better life, that's great. But we don't see spiritual reality in our secular culture as, as really playing a, a meaningful role, a tangible role, in our public life together. We say that should be left outside of our public life. But Jesus is showing, no, no, no. The way we live, the deeds we do in this world have a profoundly meaningful role to play in our society. So here's what this means for us. The signs point to a coming reality, a future reality, but they also make a tangible difference in reality right now. So for instance, you know, our world is still filled with evil, suffering, disease, and death. Even when Jesus did his miracles, he didn't heal every blind person. He didn't heal every deaf person. There were still a lot of people walking around that were experiencing an awful lot of suffering. The same thing for us. Our world is still filled with evil and suffering and death. We are not bringing about ultimate change, but we are capable of doing meaningful change. And there's a big difference between those two things. And this is really important for us to grab hold of because if we don't understand this, it leads us into all kinds of problems. Here's maybe one of the main things I want you to understand. Signs point to a future reality by making a difference in this reality. But one of the main things we need to understand is that so our job is, as God's people is to be signs of that coming reality. But we're not the ones who are going to bring in the kingdom. God is. We're not the ones who are going to transform the world. God is. Signs point to a future reality by making a difference in this reality, but there's a difference between ultimate change and meaningful change. We're not called to the ultimate change. We're called to the meaningful change. Now, here's why this is so tremendously helpful for us. On the one hand, this takes all of the pressure off of us for, for being the change agents in the world. You know, we live in a meritocratic society, right? Right? That's a big fancy way of saying that your worth and value in this world is tied to your performance. The more amazing you are, the more worth and value you have in this world. And we know it's wrong. We know it shouldn't be like that. And yet we all know that's the way it is in our world. And we feel that reality every single day. That we feel the pressure to be amazing. And when we move into the Christian life, it's very easy to just import that same pressure right into our Christian life and feel like, I've got to be amazing. But God is not calling you to be amazing. He's calling you to be available. So that when we enter into the world to be signs of a future reality that make a difference in this reality, God takes the pressure off us and he says, look, you are not the ones who are going to change the world. Don't take that kind of pressure on yourselves because that's not your responsibility and it's not your power. But on the other hand, um, this still gives us a meaningful purpose in this world. Signs point to a future reality by making a difference in this reality. So, for instance, if we were to think of this world as a humble little cottage, that's what it is right now. God's vision for this world is not to make it a perfect little cottage. Remember what we said. He's not reupholstering the world. God's vision is, is to turn the cottage into a magnificent castle perched atop an escarpment that people can see for thousands of miles around. That's what God is doing. He's turning the cottage into a castle. But if, while we're waiting for God to do that, some people in the cottage don't have chairs to sit in or a table to eat at or even food to eat, while other people in the cottage are kicking back on luxurious couches and gorging themselves on caviar and filet mignon, 
then our job is to point to the castle by making sure that everybody in the cottage has a place to sit and food to eat. Signs point to a future reality by making a difference in this reality. Friends, do you see how unique this is? Do you see the power of this? On the one hand, we're not responsible for ultimate change, but on the other hand, we still have a meaningful role to play in this world. That The gospel gives us a line to plow right down the middle of those two things that can lead us, on the one hand, if we think we're responsible for ultimate change, that could lead us into being triumphal or naive or prideful. On the other hand, if, if, on the, if we don't do that and we won't do that, that leads us into cynicism and despair because the, we'll end up saying we're still here. After all the progress that we thought we'd made, we're still here. Friends, that, you know what that does for you? When you get that vision of the world in your life, that gives you hope. And there's a big difference between biblical hope and earthly hope. Real hope, biblical hope, gospel hope, means when Jesus comes and shows himself to the disciples, he shows them his resurrected body, he's giving them a preview of the future. But it's a guaranteed preview. And the guarantee, his resurrection body is the down payment on that guaranteed future reality. That means that 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 hope gives us a way of walking right in between that tension between triumphal naivete and cynical despair. We walk right in the middle of those two things. That's biblical hope, and it is completely different from earthly hope. You know what earthly hope is? I read an article in the New Yorker magazine a few years ago written by somebody who grew up in in urban Detroit. And the author of the article was talking about how the residents in their neighborhood, um, nobody wanted to leave the neighborhood, even though the city had had really been affected by um, urban decay and blight and a lot of crime in the neighborhood. Nobody wanted to leave the neighborhood because they loved the neighborhood so much. But even though they stayed and remained in the neighborhood, they had to find some way of dealing with the awful realities that filled their daily lives, the crime and everything that was happening. So every time uh, some event or horrible event would happen in their neighborhood, here's what the author says they would say to themselves in order to help them deal with the reality. They would say, this kind of thing could happen anywhere. That's what we told ourselves. Or when that didn't work, we'd think of each burglary and carjacking and rape and murder as an isolated incident and another isolated incident and yet another isolated incident. To live in Detroit requires faith in unprovable and sometimes irrational things. To live in Detroit is to live in hope. And when people live in hope, they have to ignore some things they know are true. That's just how hope works. Do you see what the author is saying? Earthly hope means ignoring reality. Friends, gospel hope means paying attention to reality. When Jesus shows his resurrection body to the disciples, he's saying, this is ultimate reality. This is a preview of coming attractions. That is a reality completely like anything we're thinking of in this world. And he's saying, pay attention to that reality. Pay attention to me. Pay attention to my hands and my side. Pay attention to my resurrection body. That's hope. That's gospel hope. And when you have that hope in your life, then God sends you into the world to be a sign of his coming kingdom. Signs point to a future reality by making a difference in this reality. And that leads to our last point. We've seen that Jesus gives us a vision for the world, a gloriously transformed world. Um, Not a spiritually disembodied reality, but a materially renewed 
creation. Secondly, Jesus gives us a mission for our lives. He says that you're called to be a sign of the kingdom. Signs point to a future reality by making a difference in this reality. But lastly, Jesus gives us the power to do it. Because the reality is we need power to do this. So when Jesus says, I am sending you, he's saying, hey, God is calling you to take your place in his adventure, in his mission. That's exciting, but when you think about it, you realize, ooh, we need help for that. I mean, think about all the great adventure stories. The heroes are never enough all by themselves. They always need help, right? Luke Skywalker needs Yoda. Harry Potter needs Dumbledore. The hobbits need Gandalf. The heroes always need help, right? Jesus gives us that help. So you and I are not enough. So right after Jesus says, I am sending you, verse 22 says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, there is a lot of debate among Christians about the exact role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and in the life of believers. But I think it's safe to say that there are at least two things that most Christians agree on. And the two things are this. First, the Holy Spirit makes the glory of Jesus more real to us. And second, the Holy Spirit empowers us to make the glory of Jesus more real to the world around us. The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus in our lives, and the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus through our lives. He makes the glory of Jesus more real to us. He makes the magnificence and the love and the preciousness and the beauty of Jesus more real to us. And especially, did you notice that Jesus, it says, he showed them his hands and his side? Why does he focus them on that? One reason, obviously, is that he wants to convince them that it really is him. But even more than that, the hands and the side, the, the nail scars, the, the place where the spear went in, the, those are showing them what it really means to be a sign of the coming kingdom. What it really means is that when people persecute you or hate you or criticize you or marginalize you or even if they try to kill you, that being a sign of the kingdom means you do not retaliate. We absorb that hatred. We absorb that hostility. We pray for them. We love them. We forgive them. That's what Jesus calls his followers to do. That is the ultimate sign of the kingdom. And it is the most radically alien sign of all. There is no human vision for the transformation of this world, whether conservative or progressive or anywhere along the spectrum. There is no human vision for the transformation of this world in which that sign plays a part. That is an utterly otherworldly sign. It is a sign of a world beyond this world. We don't have the power to live like that all by ourselves. We need help to do that. The Holy Spirit is intended to give it to us. So wherever you're at this morning, if you're not a Christian yet, or if you're still exploring faith in Jesus, or if you're not even sure what you believe about all of this, then I would encourage you, I would invite you, ask God to give you his Holy Spirit to help you to see the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. I mean, what do you have to lose? If it's real, if this really is a picture of ultimate reality, wouldn't you want to know it? Ask God to make it real to you, to help you to see reality. But if you are a Christian, ask God every single day to give you more of his Holy Spirit. You know, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus was talking to his disciples about prayer. And he said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
then how much more does your heavenly Father want to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask God for the Holy Spirit every single day. Ask him to make Jesus more real to you, to make Jesus more real through you, to make you a sign of a future reality by making a difference in this reality. You know, when Jenny and I were at that movie this past week, one of the main things uh, the movie focuses on is what happened 48 hours after the shooting occurred. The family members um, gathered in a courthouse after the killer had been caught. And unbeknownst to them, in fact, the judge didn't even know he was going to do this. It was completely impromptu. The judge gave the family members an opportunity to speak to, uh, to the killer, the man who had actually gunned down their loved ones. And, and one by one, they began to speak words of forgiveness to him. They began to tell him that they were praying for him, that they were praying that he would repent and find forgiveness and redemption in God. Afterwards, they said it was their faith in God that empowered them to do that. They didn't even know that they were going to say that. It was a supernatural act of God's grace and power in their lives. Now, in the rest of the movie, it was really interesting and actually a little uncomfortable because there were other family members who said, you know what, I'm not there yet. I am just not at forgiveness yet. And even more than that, during the panel discussion after the film, the, the question really came up, well, if white people just expect black people to forgive all the time, then what about justice? What about accountability? What about making changes in this world so that that kind of thing doesn't keep happening over and over and over again? Those are important questions. We have to pay attention to those questions. I'm still processing what I heard and experienced that night. I'm, I'm trying to be in conversation with people about that because I certainly feel lacking for answers. But two things especially struck me. And the first is this. That forgiveness of those family members is a sign of a world beyond this world. It's a sign of a world of healing and transformation, a world that is founded and constituted in the nail-scarred hands and spear-torn side of Jesus Christ. That is a world that is only possible through the scars of a crucified Savior. But the other thing is this, that for me, and I guess I can really only speak for myself, that for me as a middle-class, middle-aged, educated, privileged white man, that if I see that sign of forgiveness, and it doesn't cause me to, to speak up, if it doesn't call me to action, if it doesn't cause me to to advocate to my white sisters and brothers that we should all be lamenting and confessing and repenting and, and making changes in this world, then I will have seen the sign but missed the meaning. That we can never look at that sign and say that's the end of the story. No, it should be the beginning of the story. That we should look at that and and we should never say, well, isn't it wonderful how that ended up? There's nothing more need be done here. We will have seen the sign but missed the meaning. Friends, we are called. God calls us into this great adventure, this great mission to serve him in this world, not just in the words we speak, but in the lives we live, lives of mercy and compassion and beauty and healing and forgiveness and generosity and non-retaliatory forgiveness. That's the, the mission God calls us to. 
And the only way we can live that way is through the, the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's impossible for us as human beings in this world. Friends, the, the, the scars in the hands of the resurrected body of Jesus Christ show you reality. So that no matter where you're at this morning, whether, whether you are a believer, whether you're still thinking about it, whether this is still all very new to you, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on that reality. You know, when the disciples saw the nails go into the hands of Jesus Christ on the cross, they would have said, well, all is lost. Hope is gone. Hope is dead. Darkness wins. Evil wins. It's all over. They had no way of knowing that just a few days later, they would see those nail-scarred hands again in the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. When you're feeling hopeless, when you're feeling overwhelmed by darkness and discouragement and despair, look at the nail-scarred hands. Look at the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Those nail-scarred hands of Jesus show you what God can do with darkness and discouragement and despair. He is our only hope. And it's a guaranteed hope. It's a living hope. Make Jesus your hope today. Let's pray.